0: Hello and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast, Volume 6, Issue 256, Undertale. You can play along with Volume 6. The entire schedule, up to and including Issue 300, can be found on the Canon Rince Rinse website. For those looking to the immediate future, as usual, we're going to let you know the next five podcasts, and we will be covering The Legend of Zelda, Skyward Sword, They Breathe, Blast Core, Chibi Robo, and then the fifth show from now will be the final of our Legend of Zelda series, the Legend of Zelda A Link Between Worlds. That's been 18 months in the making or so, I think. That's been a long series. Um, you can head to KNRinz.com for the rest of that schedule and also for articles, features, reviews, and links to forum, Facebook page, and our YouTube channel. If you enjoy what we do, there are a number of ways in which you can support us. Uh, monetarily you can support us on Patreon but don't worry if you're not able to there's no content hidden behind paywalls at patreon.com forward slash cane and rinse you can also check out our video game music podcast Sound of Play and supporting the podcast uh, either Sound of Play or Cane Rinse by reviewing, rating, and subscribing to both podcasts on iTunes or Pocket Casts, Stitcher Radio, wherever you get your podcasts from, getting the word out about Kane and Rince is almost the best thing you can do. Really, let's be honest. I'm James Carter. Joining me in issue 256 are Tony Atkins. Hello. And first time on Caden Rince, though you may have heard her uh, previously guesting on Sound of Play 68 and on the Canaan Rince forums, uh, she posts as the Stunt Lady. Joining us is Maya Santandrea. Hello. I played this game because we were doing a podcast on it. Obviously, I heard about Undertale a year and a half ago now, nearly since it came out. But I, I didn't play it. It was one I was interested in. I picked it up in a Steam sale, um, I, I think, fairly shortly after. It may even have been the winter Steam sale 2015. But I just didn't get round to playing it last year. So it's been uh, this week that I played, played the game. Uh, how about you, Tony?
1: Well, I was the one that stuck it on the uh, the podcast schedule, and actually, for us, it's a, a relatively new game. You know, twenty fifteen. It's it only just qualifies under our you know a year boundary that we tend to to cover games from. And the reason I, I put it in there, obviously, it's it's been quite hard to move through the internet of, of late. If you follow gaming circles and not trip over the uh, the legend of Undertale, it's a game that's almost wandered itself into the kind of gaming lexicon. You know, literally, it's it's crazy how popular Undertale is. My own history of it, I played it about three weeks ago, and I've been for it once. And I feel like that's probably not enough, actually, for this issue, but we'll get into that
0: the reasons why. Maya, what's your history with the game?
2: I can't really pinpoint exactly where I first heard about Undertale, because as you both have alluded to already, it was just kind of everywhere yeah. when it first came out. Um, I didn't play the demo. I hadn't really heard anything about its Kickstarter or anything like that. It just kind of got released and caused the internet to explode. Um, So I'd heard a lot about its critical praise. It was obviously very popular, but as far as the game itself, all I really knew was um, at the time was the tagline that was kind of running with it, which was something along the lines of Undertale is an RPG where you don't have to kill anyone. That in itself was intriguing enough for me and uh, got curious. I initially started playing it with a friend, actually, and uh, we just kind of picked it up, checked it out, wanted to see what it was all about. Um, we maybe got through the first couple of areas in the game, and then uh, we both sort of got busy with work and had to put it down and to sort of kind of forgot about it for a few months. Uh, then right around this time last year, um, I saw that Steam was running a sale on the game and the soundtrack. That's perfect. I've been wanting to go through this again and, and play it all the way through to the end because now I know a little bit more about it and I I understand that there are a number of different ways that you can play it. So I bought it, played through it once, did the, the neutral run first, went back, played through to a pacifist run, kind of slept on it, and then the very next day decided, I'm not quite done with this game yet. <laughs> um, I, I need a little bit more time with this. And I almost immediately reset it and played it through a second time in the same way, um, just to help myself process through everything that I I'd, I'd just experienced. And because I was genuinely enjoying it and having a lot of fun with it and wanted to experience it again. Um, and then earlier this week, I did a quick playthrough again, just, just as a refresher to kind of prepare myself for this show. So I have played it all the way through three times, and each time has been uh, a pacifist run through just because that's that's the way i preferred to play it i don't think i could bring myself to uh (laughs) play a genocide run uh and i think we'll get more into that later but um that's that's basically my my history with it in a nutshell
0: i don't think we touched on any spoilers there but it is worth saying this is almost the definition of a game that anything is a spoiler for like with, with a lot of games it's just the story that's a spoiler with undertale i think it's fair to say anything beyond what you've already heard is is going to be a spoiler. Um it's also the sort of game that pops up in Steam sales, so getting a hold of it for what would be considered for a video game fairly cheaply and it's also not that long in the region of I guess 6 to 10 hours if you're really taking your time on the first playthrough I guess. So it, it hopefully by by most accounts isn't a massive investment, so if Undertale is a game you plan on playing, maybe Play it before you listen to this podcast. Put this one on ice until you've played it, because uh, I can promise it's one that you're going to want to discover for yourselves. Um, That said, we are going to, from now on, obviously, uh, no holds barred on on spoilers. There was a lot of buzz around the game, and part of that, I think it's fair to say, was the fact that Toby Fox is not quite, but almost a one-man band on this game. A designer, artist, and composer. He had some help with some programming. Your friends stepped in and helped here and there. But for the most part, this is this is his game. This is very much as Fez or, you know, a few other indie games have very much been focused upon one person. This is Toby Fox's game. So everything you, you see and hear pretty much is going to have come from him. And certainly the story comes from him as well.
1: And it reminds me very much of Fez, the, the way that well, there's a community aspect around solving certain more intriguing things about the game.
0: Undertale was 2.7 years in development. That seemed awfully specific, so I've quoted it exactly and came out 15th of September 2015. So that means it was started uh, at the very beginning of 2013 or thereabouts, given the 0.7. This game came from Game Maker Studio. Initially was just the battle system, which we'll come to the mechanics of that uh, a bit later on. Um, but Toby Fox then wanted to kind of build that out, flesh it out into a full game. Again, as individual developers and designers do, as as Tony you said, it gives a single point of contact for anyone in games media to go and speak to so you get a very kind of singular idea of what the the vision was and what the the aims of of the game were. And in this case, the idea that Toby Fox had was to utilise the, his words actually, I'll quote exactly, why not, Uh, utilise the medium as a storytelling device instead of having the story and gameplay abstractions be completely separate. Um, That comes from a Sea Gaia dev to dev interview with Toby Fox.
2: You could almost argue that the gameplay is is tied right into the story where even things like, um, I can't remember, I think it was Josh who mentioned this on the Bloodborne episode where death and dying is actually part of the narrative story. You could almost say the same thing for Undertale where, you know, even saving the game yeah. or resetting or reloading a, a save file is all worked into the narrative almost Every pixel is a part of, of the narrative of this, uh, of this game. So I think that's a, a very fair statement. And if that's what they were going for, I think they definitely succeeded.
0: Certainly we've seen Bioware RPGs where there's the ability to circumvent some fighting with dialogue choices. But you certainly can't play through Mass Effect without ever firing a weapon. That's just not the way the game is designed. And in this case, not only, as you say, does saving is an actual ability that some beings have and some don't uh, and that becomes important in the storytelling but the fact that you are having conversations and developing relationships that is the game and not just in the same way that a a dialogue tree would
1: if you take something like you know we've been able to do pacifist runs in games you know something like deus ex you know you can you can run for that game you don't have to kill anyone you can stun people ultimately what it really does is it doesn't really change the game other than the gameplay to yourself. You might get a di- maybe a slightly different ending because you know mm. you didn't take down you know, a number of bosses etc. but it doesn't fundamentally change your you know the experience of how the game is talking to you. In in this case, you know, the the dialogue, you know, the dialogue system in particular is built out from the ground up so that the rest of the game is built around that structure. So, and, and that's what it feels very much is, that, you know, everything you do mm. in the game has a consequence, be it, you know, kill one person at the very start of the game. It still has a consequence with the very back end of the mm. game. But equally, if you don't do, you know, kill anybody at the very start of the game, then it will have a bigger consequence all the way through. You don't necessarily understand this from your, your first experience in, uh, at the start of Undertale, but actually halfway through, you realize a lot of the, the, the stuff that you may have done at the start had real big consequences and you, you yeah. just didn't see it doing coming. And, you know, I think that is a fundamental difference to a lot of games we have now you know passive playthroughs you know are common a common occurrence but i I don't think there's many games that have been fundamentally built on everything you do in the game can have a you know an a positive or negative reaction um, fundamentally so I think it's a it's a completely different scenario
2: if you try to go back in the game if you try to restart something, the game remembers your previous choices it does not forget i mean to the point where when I was playing this earlier this week and restarted it, the first thing that came up on my screen was not the title screen, it was Flowey. And he came up and said, hey, oh, you're, you're back. Well, um, it seems like everybody's pretty happy here and I don't really understand why you would wanna go back and reset everything, mm-hmm. you know, everybody, like they actually uh, make it a point you're... to say, if you go back, everybody is going to forget you, everyone's gonna forget your decisions, you really are wiping the slate clean and think about the consequences of your actions before you do that. Your choices are permanent in a lot of ways um, and we'll probably get more into this later, but that also that's up to and including if you play through as in a genocide run and decide to kill everyone up to the end of the game and then try to go back and play it as a pacifist after that.
0: Yeah, yeah. The, the game will will allow you to try, but it's gonna have permanently affected. There is actually a a flag in the in the in the mm. game's data. The act of saving is an ability that some beings have in the game, which was the way I I put it. But what you'd you talked about, Flowey is a character. A game we're going to get to later. But the notion that some characters have an awareness that saving a game is something you can do. That saving is an action that can be taken uh, and have the ability to also do that and therefore can save and reload different game states uh, as as much as you can. In a way that I guess the 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 most common touchstone for people will be a Metal Gear game. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of reaches through the fourth wall rather than necessarily breaking it entirely. And this game certainly has that aspect where sometimes you're not sure if a character's talking to you, the player, or you, the character, and the lines are very blurry on who exactly you the character is depending upon the playthrough as well so there's there's certainly that notion that um you you never by your choices kind of cut off mechanics in the game you always have the option to fight or talk to pretty much anyone you encounter more or less the decisions you have taken are certainly going to shape the way that everyone in the world reacts to you and Mm -hmm. not just in a kind of dishonored oh now there'll be more rats there and that's that's not that That's not throwing shade on Dishonored. It's one way of reflecting character choice in a game, but it's barely beyond binary in that sense. Whereas I think the idea of this is even though overall there are only three kind of bucketed sets of endings, there's much more to it in terms of the way the game is going to reflect how you are playing. I didn't actually know this about the game until I was doing research. This was a Kickstarter game, mm-hmm. and it was Kickstarted. The goal was uh, $5,000, and it got somewhere slightly over $51,000, so way more than, than it was aiming for. Although, by the standards of some video game Kickstarters, uh, $51,000, obviously not a massive amount, not if we're talking, uh, you know, some of the really successful uh, Kickstarters, Double Fine, etc.
1: I mean, I don't think. To, I mean, Toby Fox wasn't in a completely unknown uh, name, and certainly within the communities where he was a, um, yeah. you know, he's a mod, you know, in particular, you know, a mod developer. So, yeah, I, I think he he obviously had some chops behind him, and and you know, the, the game industry is littered with people who have moved from mods into the actual full, you know, full blown game mm. yeah. industry. So, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me.
0: I think it's worth mentioning here uh, because if we if we try to do so as we go through uh, the list of influences that this game draws upon. Um, are kind of disparate, so I'm not sure we would necessarily think to bring them up. Toby Fox himself listed uh, Mother and the Mario and Luigi RPG series, uh, in particular that second one where he got the idea for a bullet hell battle system from. But also he said that the notion of using dialogue to avoid conflict, he kind of, not took from, but he got the idea from Shin Megami Tensei. And... Also, I couldn't find what part of the game particularly he he drew influence for this from. I have to imagine it's the humor, but Mister Bean listed which uh, I, I know for anyone in Britain will know who that is. I think uh, Rowan Atkinson's comedy, silent comedy character, mostly silent comedy character. It just seemed like a very odd place to draw from, but I I, I kind of get it in terms of the humor, uh, that kind of awkward sense of humor that that Mister Bean has. I can see it. I can see that, that influenced.
2: I'm just going to call it Earthbound because this—that's sure. how
0: I—that's
2: yeah. how yeah. I always knew it, and um, I don't think the influences from Earthbound can really be understated. Um, you mentioned that Toby Fox was—you know—he was, uh, you know, he was a, a ROM guy before, and yeah. one of his biggest things before this was the Radiation Earthbound Halloween hack, um, which incredibly he made when he was like 17 years old or something like that. He was very young. Um, So even the, you know, it's, it's definitely not sophisticated. It definitely sounds like a 17 year old uh, wrote it. um, If you look into some of the, the rather crass sense of humor. Mm. Um, But even still, it's pretty impressive that you can you can see almost the blueprints for undertale like he was already trying to work out some of the big concepts and, and some of the themes that show up in undertale like even back then that was like 2007 i think or 2008 in the opening shot of the game there's um, the mountain is called mount Ebbett. Mm-hmm. Ebbett's Rock is a location in Final Fantasy VI. There's an almost shot-for-shot recreation of the opera scene from Final Fantasy VI in this game. So um, I think it's if you have played a lot of those kind of classic JRPGs from that era specifically, you're going to see a lot of those kind of influences crop up uh, throughout Undertale.
0: I think part of the reason this game ignited... Uh, so many imaginations quite like it did, which I think is fair to say whether or not we liked the game or not is, is moot to that um, is because of how much it does share in that lexicon of, of video games, that sort of shared history and the, the, the language that we all have that we, we use to discuss video games and the comparisons we make to other video games. All of that Evident, as you say, from screen one of the game almost, you know, from certainly the first environments onwards.
2: It's part of the reason why this game feels very personal to a lot of people.
0: Mm. Metacritic score of 92. Um, As a PC game, that puts it uh, not just amongst, I think, the top three for 2015, but amongst the top 25 PC games of all time. It's it's remarkable, really. It received uh, maximum scores from IGN, Destructoid, Giant Bomb, I, I think as well. By February 2016, which is five months after the game's initial release, uh, had sold more than one million copies, which is bananas, as I mentioned, with a lot of the kind of game of the year discussions it popping up, Giant Bomb made a big deal, obviously uh, Destructoid and IGN and uh, the the Jimquisition and Zero Punctuation listed it as, as their game of the year 2015. So I think that just fueled sales of the game. To that end, we've got a couple of uh, forum posts that I wanted to talk about just now uh, that kind of touch on what we've been talking about, how ubiquitous this game became towards the end of 2015. Todinho, first of all, on our forum said, First time I heard about Undertale was when listening to a podcast. It didn't take long for the game to come out and take the internet by storm. For a while, it seemed I couldn't open a window without seeing fans of the game showering it with praise, whilst at the same time saying nothing because... It would ruin the game if you didn't go in absolutely blind. This, of course, made me want to hate the game. So I bought it right away with the intent of playing it just so I could say that the fans were wrong and the game was overrated. As it turned out, Undertale was one of my favourite games of 2015. Tonino continues and says, Since I went in with such a negative attitude, the game would have to make a pretty good first impression to sway me. I was even going in with the intent of killing every single character just because I could. The game, however, quickly changed my mind by introducing what became my favourite character in the whole game, the psychopathic flower, Flowey. Without hesitation, I'll go straight into another one from Buscalili, also on the forum. I'm glad I played Undertale as early as I did, having not been subjected to the hype and proselytising the game's fans have been spreading since release. The writing was funny, the symbiosis of gameplay and story was ingeniously done, and what the endgame said about the player and games as a medium was expertly crafted. Is Undertale perfect? Of course not. I played through the game not wanting to kill anybody, only to reach the final boss who must be fought on the first playthrough and find myself hideously underleveled. I powered through though because what is there is absolutely aces. The problem now is trying to mute the constant chatter before it turns me around on liking the game like Portal's fanbase did. We've got one person who expected or you know, went in expecting not to like the game who was turned around on it and someone else who went in liked the game and now is worried about being turned round by the kind of enthusiastic response that the the game has has had, um, which maybe speaks a little bit to why a year after the game's release, so September 2016, this would have been, Toby Fox put a blog post up on the undertale.tumblr blog. A year later, a bit of a kind of, I guess, post-mortem would be the term, uh, on the game and how he feels about it. And to him, the game is the same game it was when, released that hasn't changed but it was so successful and there was so much attention put on it and therefore by extension him that he, he felt it really stressed him out he, and and the fact that I'm paraphrasing here so apologies if if i'm I'm not nailing the uh, the exact tone toby he said that the, the fact that it stressed him out and he knew he should be happy about it rather than stressed out only added to that stress it had this sort of snowball effect. I think it's understandable because as you said, Tony, the, the focus falls squarely on one person's shoulders here. And that means that with us, you know, success or failure, all of that lies on one person's shoulders and such a great success from a game that not only did Toby not expect, but in some ways there's a bit of imposter syndrome there where, it sounds like he doesn't necessarily feel it warranted. You know, to him, he said, I think uh, this is still the same 8 out of 10 game that I thought I made. <laughs> you know, that's what he thought of it. He had a very clear idea, obviously, of the game's successes and, and flaws and failures. So,
1: It being a small game, it being a very personal game, is that you you have to look at the, the person that's had the influence on the game. In this case, it's Toby Fox. So mm. I think, you know, clearly he has a love of... Um, you know, Nintendo RPGs back in, you know, the 16-bit era. And, you know, some of his story choices, there's absolutely reams of, um, you know, discussion about, you know, whether he's the macro of whether some of the decisions, design decisions he made within the stories made sense or, you know, breaking stuff down into, you know, tiny little elements. And you you can just see as and when he's making this game that there's maybe one or two decisions that he just kind of makes off the cuff, just off the fly. Like, oh, well, I'll, I'll just kind of put this in almost as a joke, almost as a laugh. And then you get people just absolutely you know, scrutinizing every single decision because that's what the Internet does. And if it's a big game and it's a game that's been popular as well, you get that tenfold. And I think he's probably just feeling the pressure of, well, look, it was never meant to be a perfect game. and. You're judging it as a perfect game. And I don't even believe it's a perfect game, but this is the situation we're in.
2: Looking at it kind of on the other side, with all due respect to the game's creator, first of all, once you've put your creation out there, it's out there for the public to scrutinize and to do with it what they will. And I think um, you know, the the other end of that is when you judge something like Undertale based on something like a number ranking or sales numbers or something like that, you're kind of missing the point of what makes a game like this special and what makes it important to people. (laughs) Sometimes it's just that good. And whether or not you agree with it, I think this game has something important to say, something very relevant to say. And I think it holds up, Um, you know, now as we are here like a year and a half after its release.
1: It's not like he's sh- he's shied away from making the people dig deeper. You know the fact that you can go into, you know, text files, change stuff. You know, actually, you know, fundamentally kind of break the game, and there's a a reaction from the game itself to you. Shows that you know he was more than prepared to kind of feed. I'd not say feed the trolls in not a negative you know way, but you know to feed the people that are, are yeah, more to kind f- of fuel
0: the fire yeah, of interest. yeah, to
1: go, f- people, fuel yeah. the fire.
2: It's almost a reward to find them too. It's like, hey, what what are you doing here?
1: <laughs> and clearly, that comes from his experience with the ROM, you know, background, and yeah, the fact that you know that's that's his absolute roots is messing around with game code. Um, so why why wouldn't he kind of put backdoors and, and knowing that people will probably do that to his game, given half a chance?
0: As you say, once a creator sends their creation out into the world, they kind of relinquish control of that it, not kind of they relinquish control to a certain extent and that's not an easy thing to do uh, and obviously takes a lot of kind of coming to terms with uh, especially when so many people are talking about the game like in undertale's case art and graphics <laughs> and the way the game looks it's interesting that we've been talking about you know uh sort of NES era uh, rpgs and dungeon crawlers and, and you know legend of zelda and stuff like that because actually, for me, the first touchstone, when that black screen comes up and you get the kind of uh, the little intro cutscene, I guess, yeah, um, that reminded me very much of home computer era, sort of BBC Micro and uh, ZX Spectrum and you know, Commodore, all, all of that, that kind of uh, mid-80s uh, home computer type of text adventures. Black background, white blocky text, graphics that roughly represent a background, a scene that's happening, not in any way as in-depth as as Undertales are, and without the sort of character design and and animations going on, etc. Other than that, I'm I'm not sure how to describe the way the game looks. It's a it's a bizarre thing because it is simplistic to first glance. There is more to it than that. There are details in the background. You know, even from the first time you see Flowey on on the screen, the detail in the face of a flower that's fairly small, sort of a couple inches high at most in the middle of the screen, the detail is on the face and the way that the expressions change, there's obviously a lot more detail in this than a game from the mid-1980s would have been able to accomplish.
2: This is a very unsophisticated looking game. In a way, it almost tricks you you see something like that you see the little the little pixel designs and the very simple but kind of subtle facial expressions that change here and there you know it might be it might be something small it might be sans just kind of shrugging and winking and mm-hmm. That's pretty much all of the character animation you get out of, out of him. And seeing that might make your brain think, well, okay, well, I know, I know what this game is going to be. I know what to expect from it. It, it continually subverts your expectations, which I think is uh, to its own advantage. It kind of sets you up for one thing, and then it manages to, to bring in a little bit, you know, something that's more sophisticated or, or complex or a more serious subject matter it does sort of trick your brain into thinking you can relax, you can, you know, what's going to happen. And then I don't know where it'll, it'll turn on you and, and throw something unexpected at you.
1: I I think some of the the problems this game has um, from the aspect is there's in the last 10 years, there's been no shortage of games, you know, giving homage to eight and 16 bit era. Yeah. Yeah. Retro looking, Uh, retro aesthetic. Yeah, Yeah. Every week there's a dozen or so games that are released. And yeah, there's, there's a you know good reason for that. Obviously, it's it's easier to produce that style of graphics, um, and it costs less. So you know that that's why it's a go-to um, look. But I, I think there there is definitely it's got a its own look. Um, you know, mm-hmm. be be it via its color palette, uh, and definitely as um, I said, you know the the kind of winks and nods from the characters, and, and I think because its core is primarily story based, that really helps you to fall in love with the the settings and the characters if it's purely combat you kind of just get involved in the combat and would think forget about the kind of the graphics that you're playing anyway Um, not that they're you know terrible to look at but because it is story-based you do start to fall in love with the characters as simple as they are and a a wink and a nod or you know a cat walking on or a dog walking onto the screen uh, a little mouse in the corner like all that stuff starts to kind of inhabit the world a lot more Purely because you've got a bit more time to kind of digest it. It's not just you know bash and blast your way through something. So you know, I, I think aesthetically, I don't think it's anything I've I've not seen before. Certainly over the last you know five ten years. But I do think it has its own visual style, and I do think it's one of those games that you can put a screenshot up, up on, and most people will just instantaneously say, "Oh yes, yeah, that's Undertale."
2: To the the credit of the of you know Toby Fox and the other uh, game designers, they managed to put a lot of characterization in every single all of the main cast of characters and the random encounter enemies there's a heck of a lot of characterization in all of them you know that are done in very simple ways a lot of times it can be just a simple a wink or a shrug or someone looking slightly off to the left i mean uh i'm going to i'm going to Bring up Flowey just for a second, because he's the first character that you essentially encounter when you're when you're playing it. When you come up to him, he's got this gigantic smile on his face. He looks like a, a an old Disney cartoon. Yeah, sunshine. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he looks like and and then his music starts playing and it's that god awful Plinking like saccharine sweet like and then he's to howdy i'm wow it. like <laughs> you just you want to smack him in the face you instantly know that he is completely full of <laughs> and that you should not trust this character and they managed to do that without the advantage of having vocal or facial um animation or or mocap actors or a dialogue tree it's done with very uh, simple and subtle audio-visual cues. So the amount of character, the amount of emotion that they're able to, to get out of, of these very simple designs is really quite incredible. I mean, that is, that I think is one of the great successes of this game is, is just how much characterization they managed to cram in with a very simple visual style. And usually you get that information right away.
0: Yeah. I mean, just thinking, is it Aaron, the flexing seahorse that you have to fight in a random mm-hmm. battle? Just the the image. So the images of the characters uh, and for the the random encounters, that's the only image you see is on the battle screen, but for others, you will meet them in the game world and then they'll transition into the battle screen, which is a very standard sort of your battle arenas uh, down the bottom, your menu, if you like, down the bottom. And then up the top is an image of the character. Um, and even then, you know, whether it's the two the two dogs that you're fighting and all the way through, they're just sort of kissing one another because <laughs> they're partners. Um, and, and it's just tiny little things, but it's just, it just tells you a little bit extra about the character. And in the case of the flexing seahorse, everything you need to know is right there. Mm-hmm. You know, just ridiculously muscled torso with the, the sort of tail coming off below and just almost... He's not, but he's almost winking at you. Is that sort of character who's clearly uh, very vain, but, you know, happy and go-lucky sort of character. And it tells you a little bit of how you need to play them as well. You mentioned uh, music there, and before we get on to that, I just want to quickly read another forum post, this time from Mauricio MM on the forum, who says, Undertale is for sure not a game for everybody. Not necessarily because of its difficulty, sometimes satisfactory, sometimes unfair. Uh, Its pacing... Too slow at first but very exciting in the second half or even its cast of characters, lovable or annoying depending upon who you are. But because of its personality, its voice, its spirit, for people with an open mind, experience with loneliness, a kind of deep understanding of nerd culture, extra points if you've played Earthbound, and a healthy sense of humour, this game is almost perfect. Personally I don't consider it the best game of all time, it's after all a specific game for specific tastes, but it definitely earned an important place in my heart. Oh, and the soundtrack is sublime in its own way. Like with the graphics, I don't really know how to describe the soundtrack, because to be that guy and demean it, it's all the sorts of bleeps and bloops you would expect from the same era as the, the graphics send us back to. But it's, again, like the graphics, there's more to it than that. It's knowing in that that it needs to evoke that more restricted sound set and specific sound set that those computers had access to. Um, But it's not just here's the battle music, here's the world music. Each character has their own theme when you face them in battle. Certainly all the main ones do. And each area of the world has their own theme. Uh, and there are times when the theme changes as the mood changes. Uh, it, there's a lot of stuff going on in the soundtrack.
1: Well, I know listening to, to Toby Fox himself talk about it, how a lot of the, um, the kind of repeating themes that would happen for the game was a purely kind of a cost-effective way of producing stuff. But once again, also understanding that, you know, a number of games that you played in the past, you know, earworms are incredibly important to a gamer. Um, yeah. And, you know, Undertale has... There's plenty of those but I, I you know like you james i'm not I'm not the person to necessarily talk about hundreds <laughs> and about music but it's catchy in all the right places it needs to be and there's some beautifully yeah. written pieces you know, be it in battle you know um you could be uh, you know having a unique piece of of music playing in battle and it's maybe got two or three parts that piece of music it you know depending on your performance within in in that battle be it aggressively or passively the music can mm-hmm. actually change to what your know, your actions are in there and so it's, I think it is a, a complex inclusion of ideas of, of music in, in the game more than just what the mm. surface it would seem. That makes sense. Uh, Toby's background is in music as well. So just listen to some of the interviews of him. He, he talked about how he would write a, a you know, piece of content for the game and then build, be, build the game around that piece of music. So it's, it's no surprise that the music is fantastic because that's actually yeah. a bit like the the story that, you know, that's one of the first and foremost things he wanted to squeeze into this game more so than, you know, a lot of the actual kind of moving around um, adventure mechanics. You know, it was the it was the, you know, the combat and the music were the primary mm-hmm. focus of the game and it, and it really does show
0: anecdotally, I think we both agree that Undertale must be one of the most requested games on <laughs> yes. Sound of Play for its soundtrack. It's it's just appeared so many times, not just Maya, when you were on Sound of Play, but other times as well.
2: I absolutely adore this soundtrack. Um, I'm, I'm really glad that I bought the game in the way that I did, where I got the bundle of the game and the soundtrack separately. It runs such a, a nice variety, and it balances pretty well between the the sort of more simplistic chip tunes, uh, throwbacks to the eight and sixteen bit era, you know, type games, and then these just gigantic sounding, like epic electronic pieces, and and then you know you go down even uh, even more stripped down to like, there are some pieces that are just an acoustic guitar or just a little bit of piano and a, and a violin that are very sparse, but they say something about the environment or they say something about the character that you are interacting with. Sands and Papyrus are great examples of that. You know, they're here, here you have your, your two, uh, the, the bone brothers here and, uh, you know, Sans's music is a little bit more laid back it's a little bit more jazz influenced kind of it sounds kind of goofy right and that's yeah. his person yeah. he's got a very goofy personality then when papyrus steamrolls onto the screen <laughs> all of a sudden it's it's upbeat it's and intense. it's it's like yeah. hyperactive it bounces all over the place it's it's got so much it's got so much energy it almost can't contain itself yeah. Um, yeah. and again you know absolutely everything that you need to know about these two characters, their personalities, what makes them tick, even just from that, even just from hearing their theme music and you know how to deal with them.
0: Yeah, Papyrus' theme, uh, whenever he's preparing a puzzle for you and you walk onto the screen, uh, it has this this mania, this really intense sort of manic uh, rhythm to it. Yeah, it just speaks to him, Uh, you know, all all the way through your interactions with him uh, through the game. Your first impression of any of these characters is going to be the music because before you've even taken in what they look like and read what it is they have to say, you're going to have heard their theme tune. And that struck me uh, very early on that each character has their own theme and it sows the seeds for what to expect from that character. Even as you say with, with Flowey, you get a sense from everything about that character that there's something wrong, even from the first moment.
2: There's, there's one other thing that that really stuck out to me possibly because it's winter right now so you know just mm. the the change in the in the uh, climate has has been a thing even here in uh, hot Atlanta Georgia when you're going through the first area leading up to Snowden, um, yes. yeah, the
0: Snowden
2: everything yeah. is everything is very everything is is covered with snow it's definitely yeah. winter there there's ice everywhere and it the background music is that very pared down um, piano and, and violin. It sounds really cold and a little bit harsh at times, but then once you transition into Snowden, it's just Christmas time and the music is still very wintry, but it's, it's joyful and it's got this cheer to it and you just, <laughs> it's festive. But that really stuck out to me this time around, just that transition of how you're still in the cold and it's still the exact same climate and environment, but because you have entered Snowden, it's a party now.
0: Yeah, the the Snowden theme um, and and the theme from leading up to it are are yeah, favourite to mine. I was. As it happens, watching um, a genocide playthrough today, which I shouldn't feel happy at the music in that playthrough, but the the ambient music uh, around Snowden is is just great for that. It doesn't necessarily lean on much like the um, music around Christmas time in in Bully. That I mean, that almost steals liberally from the kind of Home Alone style theme because it's all about pranks and hijinks. And this doesn't do that, but it, it evokes what we think of as wintery music without going straight to Christmas themes, you know, without stealing from Christmas songs or anything like that. It's just something about it. You're quite right. It has that kind of chill to it. and, And you really get the idea that you're headed into the cold without necessarily even needing to see the snow. Right. It's about time for us to start talking about the way the game plays. And in order to do that, we're going to dive into an email sent to us, and this one came from Matt Sharawara. Hopefully I pronounced that right. I'm not sure I could mispronounce it, but Sharawara. Um, Matt Sharawara says, having a seriously outdated and underpowered laptop has proven to be a wonderful thing for my gaming life over the past couple of years. I'm funneled down a very specific path towards playing games like Papers, Please, Lisa and Undertale. Games that require very low technical requirements. How wonderful it is that I don't feel limited at all by being forced to play these titles. Rather these three titles represent some of the finest gaming experiences I have gone through as an adult. There are so many moments and characters from this game that have stayed with me, and not just the obvious ones like Sans. I remember ending the fight with two knights by getting them to reveal their hidden feelings for one another, and escaping from a spider by revealing I had previously bought cider from a spider bake sale. As you can probably tell from those two anecdotes, my playthrough was one that avoided all-killing and led to a very gratifying and charming ending. Avoiding all-killing evolves the game into something which swaps from a bullet hell to an obtuse puzzle game in between turns. Uh, so ending there on a couple of kind of the core tenets of the gameplay, we have I've a couple of times mentioned text adventures, uh, and there's a... There's a lot of the game that is that, there's a lot of on-screen text to read, and then when you go into the menu, especially if you want to avoid fighting, you are going to be doing a lot of talking to characters to try and work out how you can appease them without having to actually engage in in fighting. Along that line, Tadino, less enthusiastically on the forum, says, If someone were to ask me if they should play the game solely for the gameplay, I would tell them not to bother. It's at best an interesting puzzle game in which you have to figure out how to resolve all conflicts without killing your enemies or a very simplistic RPG. I don't think either of those aspects benefit by having bullet hell sections. To me Undertale is at its best when introducing weird likeable characters making quirky jokes like a whole dating system out of nowhere or when it's cleverly subverting expectations by breaking the fourth wall and commenting on player behaviour. The game seems to know this making the proper pathophist pacifist path the one most players will take or try to take whilst almost punishing players who go for the genocide path by making them grind to get that ending. That can be a valid criticism of the game but I think it's in a way part of the point of the game is narrative and characters versus mechanics and completion. In that sense Undertale certainly favours one side but I don't think it's a bad thing. So Tardino not necessarily thrilled about the gameplay in and of itself. To sum it up as text adventure meets shmup meets rhythm action kind of misses out, as Tardino mentioned, dating sim, verbal jousting aspect like Monkey Island of of using that text adventure as part of a battle system. Bullet hell is something people point to a lot in this game because it stands out whether you're taking a pacifist run or fighting you're going to be defending and that requires moving a little heart cursor around a white box to avoid contact with anything white basically in there so even in that respect it's it's much more complex than just navigating your little heart ship if you like around the screen sort of geometry Wars style but for some reason the bullet hell aspect always stands out to people
1: there's three ways to play this game so you have Pacifist, where you go through the game entirely, not trying to kill any character. Um, and that will be through, obviously, just engaging in battle, but engaging in a battle of words. There will be the way to go through the entirety of the game, killing every single character. Obviously, words will be spoken, but it has a very different feeling. And there will be the way that I got caught up doing without really realizing. Uh, and I think this will probably be, uh, well, I, I guess it was just called the neutral way, or just...
0: Yeah, neutral ...neutral.
1: Route. Um... Which is when you first load into the game, I I think you fall down onto your preconceptions of what all games are, right? So you have a battle system, you're presented with that battle system, and you you, you press the fight button. And that's exactly what I did. We're well, told to. Yeah, yeah you're told to, to fight. Yep. So I'm told to fight a character, I fight a character. And, and this is what I do for about, you know, the, the best part of maybe the, the first five or six um characters in the game. You know, I just I, I bundle through because, you know, this is my preconception of what every game is like. You you have a fighting system, you use the battle system. And what you quickly learn and what was really um frustrating to me was the actual attack the, the attacking, the actual combat in the in the battle system is really bad. The game is giving you all the information you need that start to say, look, you know, there's another way, but it doesn't You know, it doesn't explicitly tell you that this is this this is a a game of you know choice. You know, a choice of do you wish to kill people or do you wish to you know just you know talk your way out of situations and be the good guy. But you know your preconceptions that is that you need to kill, and so I was just you know you you have the I would call it that kind of the golf bar. So it's the it's the bar that moves from left to right, and you need to hit a certain point in the middle. And we've all seen a billion times before, and. You know, there's me. I'm I'm getting properly into that mechanic. Like I'm trying to hit in the middle. I'm feeling like there must be. Hey, I'm good at this. Yeah, there, <laughs> there must be more to the. Like I've heard about this legendary combat. That like this is really odd. And in some respects, I love the game for for taking me down that route. Uh, in other respects, I hate the game because it, it it led me down the route that my decisions at the start of that game were just formed on you know decisions of every game. You know, murder is the way. You know, you just push forward. It's an RPG. I killed two or three characters off and you know, that haunted me for, for, for my rest of my entire playthrough. It locked mm. me out of certain areas that even though at that point, once, once I realized the errors of my way, I, you know, I, I was talking about it on, your know, on our own forum, just the pacifist route. That is the battle system. It's a challenging, it's, you will lose you know, a lot of health, you know, just essentially becoming a pawn of trying to work out where the, you know, the interesting flaws of each character or you know, how you can, uh, yeah, influence them to, to to basically either flee or you know submit obviously that's not the first time that's ever happened you know there, there's you know games that have done that before yeah it's, it's really interesting how i fell foul to it yeah the, the game remembers it, it tarnished me as a character throughout the game and it, to the point like i say towards the end of the game even though i'd put my blood sweat and tears of of working each character out you know i was locked off you know, from certain rooms i got the you know the kind of I guess a fairly basic ish ending, you know, that it, it kind of sat somewhere in the middle. There's a dummy at the start. It's just, a, you know, <laughs> it's a dummy that is a punching bag. Why would you not hit the punching bag? Yet you meet the punching bag's brother at the end of the game, who talks to you about how you killed his brother.
2: Let me interject right there and just say that dummy is an absolute dick to you, whether you kill the dummy <laughs> at the beginning or not. He is just a miserable, miserable thing. So it, that was not entirely your fault. He is no, just no. A, a curmudgeon through and through, no matter what you do.
1: I think a lot of people will have that same experience as me, which is this combat system seems, you know, frankly, not that in, intriguing until you realize that the game has been telling you all along that you should be trying maybe something different.
2: Leon I think actually said something very similar to that where he was like oh no I think I'm playing the game wrong and Mm -hmm. I heard that and I was like "Uh, well not exactly because that's that kind of goes back to the the idea of the choice like you're making the game reassures you kind of throughout your playthrough that your decisions are your own you can do what you want but you you just have to be willing to live with them for the rest of your experience so you know, and it could be possible that you accidentally hit the fight button a couple of times. Like, I I certainly did that, too. But some, you can just let the, the cursor kind of fly it, off.
1: It's not like I hadn't been told from the Internet multiple times that the way to play this game is through the passive route. But I, I think <laughs> even me, you know, knowing that, even hearing conversations via podcasts, via articles, all that stuff, I still entered that game going, well, yes, but, you know, let me just kind of mess around with all mechanics of this game why did i not you know hit the dummy at the ver- at the very first start it, you know it makes sense I and mean, certainly you know now of course you know i would advise people to, to to probably stick to one path but it still has given me an experience and it's given me a different experience from another person because i did actually tackle the game how i thought i would end up tackling it anyway and the mm. fact that the game still kind of came back and you know i didn't get all the answers i wanted and i've I've gone off and searched for those answers and I would love to play the game through again on, you know, either you know, the pacifist or aggressive or genocide playthroughs. But it, it was interesting that, you know, I still forged ahead even knowing that maybe I should have just, you know, gone a pacifist route. But I hadn't realized it would be quite so quick and I couldn't revert back some of the earlier decisions, how misjudged yeah. they probably were. And, you know, actually what it comes down to, how bad I felt. About the decisions that I made at the start of that game, yes you know, it may have only been two or three lives I took, but it still had an effect on the kingdom around me. it still had an effect on mm. the people's opinions of me. It still took me a long time in the game for people to actually trust me or not call me you know names that you know I was a murderer and it was like it was just a couple of guys at the start <laughs> low level guys
2: come on. I think you're you're not alone in that though, because it is just kind of a, almost an instinct. You see the fight button and you just hit the fight button, like almost, you know, uh, you almost don't even think about it, right? To go into the, the more pacifist way, um, like you were saying, I have played a lot of RPGs in my time. You know, I entered this with the mindset of, well, its tagline is, this is an RPG where you don't have to kill anybody, Okay, let's actually put that to the test. You said that I don't have to kill anybody, and we're gonna we're gonna try that out. and And since the game kind of grabbed me, you know, by by the horns right away, I hung on absolutely every word that everybody said. So Flowey, I knew could not be trusted, just outright didn't trust him. I'm going to avoid those, those little friendliness pellets. Like, I know that's not true. So obviously that's not true. Then I met Toriel and she said, oh, you may find yourself in a fight. Here's a dummy. I want you to get in a fight with this dummy. The first thing you should do is strike up a friendly conversation with it. Okay. All right. Then that's what I'll do. Then I'll strike up a friendly conversation with it. And I had to really pay attention to what everyone was saying. And I knew this being based on a traditional RPG. I've got to really pay attention to what people like Toriel are telling me. I've got to, I've got to talk to every NPC that I find and get as much information out of them as I can. But the game rewards you for doing that, which is awesome. It's, it's a great thing to see because Toriel tells you, "Yeah, strike up a conversation with this." That is how you get through the game without killing anyone. Act instead of fight. Use the check mechanic to learn something about them. Like I think if, uh, you know, if you check different enemies, they'll say something different about them. Um, One of, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. one of, one of the enemies, um, there's a, there's an action you can take that says unhug and, um, (laughs) there's, there's a little, I can't remember what it is. It's one of the molds or, or something silly like that. And if you check him, it says something like, like it's essentially afraid of you and that's why it attacked. And then if you select unhug, it says that the enemy appreciates the fact that you are respectful of its personal space. Mm. And and that's how you get it to to let its guard down. So I tried to get as much information from every single character as I could, to the point where there's a froggit in one of the rooms where there's just like three of them in a row. If you talk to one of them, he tells you how to get Toriel without killing her. During my first playthrough, I'd kind of forgotten about it. And she keeps telling you, you've got to fight. You've got to fight. It's was like, well, I'm not doing that. The game said that. I didn't have to kill people, so I'm not doing that. Hmm. I thought at first, my first tactic, and this is so backwards. Um, my tactic was, what if I get Toriel to kill me? What if I get her... To attack me so much that she feels bad, and then lets me go. Like that was really what I was thinking. And of course, if you get to a very low HP in her fight with you, her attacks start to purposefully avoid
1: you. It's funny as well. So and that happens.
2: clearly, clearly, she doesn't <laughs> actually want to fight. And then I thought back to the frog, and and he said something to the to the effect of, "There may be times where you'll have to show mercy to somebody who won't accept it." You may have to spare somebody, even if their name isn't yellow, which is kind of the, the signifier that they don't want to fight anymore and you can mm. spare them. And I thought, that's it. That's the way to get pastoral. All you have to do is just be patient and let her work through this. Keep offering mercy, even though she doesn't want to accept it, but that's what you have to do. And that's eventually how you get to, to pass by her. So it's a lot of a little bit of detective work and, it pays off, like even though, um, you know, going back to, to what that contributor said, no, the gameplay aspects are not all that sophisticated, but I, I quite enjoyed them. I thought the, um, you know, a, a traditional RPG will have a traditional turn-based battle system. This one does as well, but having that little bullet hell window Breaks up the monotony of the turn-based system. Trying to figure out what each random encounter or what every main character wants or needs from you, in order to get them to the point where they will accept your mercy, is like a little mini puzzle. It's like you know, you have to puzzle out what they want or need from you, and sometimes it turns into a little mini narrative and can be you know like a little bit of comedy is thrown in there.
0: Possibly a bit of a strange take on this. Um, First of all, I would say, I think, uh, Tony, it's perfectly understandable that even if you know that you can get through without having to fight in the game, the fact that Flowey deceives you to begin with and then attacks you openly, um, and then Toriel is saying to you, you have to fight me in order to leave. I think it's understandable that you would think, and especially with the dummy as well, okay, this is a training dummy. I am just learning how to fight. It doesn't actually matter. And I think it's, it's very clever that the game not pushes you towards fighting, but suggests that this is like any other game learn to fight that's absolutely fine mm. you are going to have to fight this uh, tutorial character tutorial, which i didn't actually realize is short for tutorial mm-hmm. but now i do <laughs> can't believe i didn't see that you think okay that's fine once i'm out the door then i can stop fighting and it kind of does trick you into that a little bit to my detriment probably i knew that that was an aspect of the game that i didn't have to fight anything and so I I didn't. And what ended up happening was, paradoxically, I felt like I was having to brute force conversations, like I was having to guess what option to choose, what dialogue to instigate, in order to just stumble upon the answer. And I think had I started fighting the fights and realized that six to ten hours of hammering a button in time with a line crossing the center, <laughs> no, that's not terribly exciting. That's a mini game that outstays its welcome very quickly, then maybe I'd have appreciated that investigative side of it a bit more. But um, it felt a bit haphazard to me initially. um, And it was only actually, despite how much I didn't enjoy watching it, watching the genocide playthrough today, that actually really sunk in how much I really did appreciate even haphazardly and almost brute forcely trying to solve verbal puzzles.
1: That can be leveled at almost any game. I, you know, I think Mass Effect always comes up and in that kind of scenario. I'm going to go Panic Paragon and then just do... You know, you, you're not even looking at the dialogue options. It's just, I, well, I want to play a good guy. You know, and whatever the consequences come from that, at least I did the right thing. And then you know, equally going down the Renegade option. Yeah, So I think that is is definitely a thing. And, I, and Undertale does a, a good job of trying to... You know, get rid of that into some respects, but like pigeonholing yourself, only being able to pick one thing is a problem. But I, I think within Undertale in particular, knowing that, and maybe this did help knowing that I, I killed a few characters in, uh, at the start, and I was being referenced to the fact that I did that, probably did um, spur me on to to look at all the other options and ways that I could around these characters yeah it held you to account a bit i guess yeah maybe not having any experience of that would be a detriment in the way it would be in any game but it's it's not like you don't see the battle system happening directly in front of you you know you're still you're still being attacked, you're still trying to play you're the
0: You're still having to go through the yeah, schmuck even going if you've been the, the conversation because what, you're defending. You yeah.
1: yeah. And you are yeah. still getting the character's kind of emotional you know, emotional state coming across. And I, I you know, obviously by killing those characters that has a, a, an effect on the entirety of the game world as as you progress through it, as well as the character state as you as you um fight against them. And that's why I feel like in, in this show in particular, you know, quite often, you know, one play of a game Having a bit of time summarizing your thoughts in your own head, doing a little bit of research around it, really helps. But in in the case of Underset, I'd really feel like my, my one playthrough wasn't enough to understand what that game has to offer. Even if it, you know I have seen you know a number of sides to it, I feel like I do need to go through the Genocide playthrough and and the Pacifist playthrough as well as the Neutral playthrough.
0: And um, we're certainly going to come on to the the different paths and and the results of of those a bit more. Um, but I think the other so the other thing that's actually quite interesting and maybe reinforces the position that the fighting really is plain is that that hitting the mark when you attack doesn't change throughout the game but no. the defending does quite significantly or it changes far less the the defending changes not just character to character but round to round it will differ and change and like the sands fight towards the end of the of the game and the undine actually was the first time i really noticed it it starts playing with the rules of it as well like the the game space will suddenly change stuff will come from outside of the white box instead of just appearing at the edges of it blue i guess bullets that you have to stay still if they touch you you can't be moving when they touch you and it adds yellow ones where the arrow comes from the side of the white box and tries to hit you and you're kind of holding a shield up against it but the yellow ones jump to the opposite side before right before they attack so you you know it adds all of this stuff that breaks the rules of what you've seen before or develops the rules in a way that keeps that fresh in a way that i don't think again not having played the game through fighting every single character looking at it it didn't seem to change uh not nearly as much um, at least, and so from from that point of view, it kind of clues you in again to the fact that a lot of the development effort and a lot of the the sort of nuance and just the effort, I guess, has been put into making the defensive part of the action interesting and the conversation. Yeah, you you'll have uh, there's a moose at one point that a lot of teenagers have hung a load of uh, trash on basically, and so. Part of the conversation is I have to remove these items in order to appease it. Or um, there's a dog who can't see you if you stand still. And that's where it introduces the notion of the blue bullets not seeing you if, you're stood, if, if your heart is still. It's all instrumental in learning about the character and understanding what it is you're going to need to do in order to befriend them. Which ultimately is the aim of the true pacifist run is... There's only key characters you have to be befriend it, but actually the idea is just befriend everyone because isn't that the nicer thing? And all right, that's kind of a simplistic way of viewing the morality of the game, but it does test you as you found, Tony. It it sets you up a little bit to fail, not in not in a malicious or underhanded way, but. It asks you to confront what you do in every other game, not every other game, but a lot of other games you play and the lessons you have learned in spending, in my case, you know, 30 years playing games or whatever.
1: It can be really hard sometimes to actually talk down a character from, you know, from their attack stance. And I think that's a a really good thing because it's the easiest thing in this game actually to attack characters and... You know, the more the more you play for the game, actually on the genocide run, you, know, you become more and more powerful to the point where you're pretty much one hitting any any character you come up against.
2: And you, know, um, you have to grind to the point where random encounters stop showing up altogether.
0: Yeah, which is as many as forty in one of the the regions you've got to clear. So yeah,
2: that's the other aspect of the true genocide is and and where that. the hatred kind of comes from and and that kind of ties into the story elements of it as well is that you're not just fighting every time you are purposefully hunting down every (laughs) single creature and destroying every single one
0: and that that's the most time-consuming part of that um that run is just walking back and forward until you trigger a random battle
2: and uh and to to kind of go back to tony's point as well and you know It is, it is hard sometimes to, to go through this, especially if you don't, if you stay with like 20 HP throughout the entire game, there are some pretty big difficulty spikes, um, peppered throughout the game. And it's, it's tough. You have to get really good at juggling between acting and using your healing items a lot of times. And sometimes you, you just miss and, and you mess up and have to start again, but, I think that is that also goes into one of the points that the game it kind of tries to make. And, and one of the big
3: mm-hmm.
2: themes running throughout the game is that finding a peaceful resolution to conflict isn't always the easiest thing to do. It's not it's hard sometimes. It's very difficult sometimes to um, to talk your way through a confrontation or to or to try to find a, a peaceful end. But it's often the most rewarding course of action when it works.
0: So in, in contrast to, to Dino, who who felt, uh, I think it's fair to say, that the, the gameplay wouldn't stand on its own if it wasn't for the characters and the story around that, um, we've got another couple of pieces of uh, forum feedback. The first one from Major Gamer, who says, the combat itself is the strongest point for me, helped by being vastly different from other turn-based RPGs, turning enemy attacks into a little schmup. Each enemy has a few patterns and they are all different to keep you on your toes during combat. It's even nice that the enemy's characteristics are often brought into the attacks themselves, such as the two dogs blowing kisses at each other or Undyne finally catching you and locking you into place. Flowey is one of the characters that is aware that this is a game and uses it to his advantage by saving and loading the game. Lastly, how can I not mention Sans when speaking about the combat? a fight that breaks several previously established rules in a last-ditch effort to stop you from killing and ending the Underground for the rest. Then Andrew Brown, uh, also on the forum, says, What I admire most about Undertale is that you can ignore all of its narrative and world-building, and it's still a perfectly entertaining RPG. Whether you're murdering everything in sight or trying to talk your way through, every fight has some unique mechanic, blending in platforming and bullet-hell design to create eclectic and engaging fights. Even to a player uninterested in its plots and themes, I'd recommend this as being just a fun, well-designed video game.
1: One of the interesting things, as well, through the dialogue com- combat is is that if you you have a character like Underline, who they're completely ingrained in their hatred towards you as a human, because I mean that's how they've been brought up in this society, you know, this underworld of monsters. That you know we are inherently bad; we're to be afraid, and you know all that goes in between that. So. I think, you know, we're talking about how hard it is to to navigate some of these text combat, and that's down to how well it's written. You know, you do get the feeling that, yeah, it's a melee, but it's a melee of me trying to break down what people have been told for years in this in this kingdom. And uh, as you go, as you progress further and further into the game, like the the word of mouth about, you know, you maybe are one of the good guys you, know, you maybe are a good human.
2: That could be the reason why the monster kid doesn't see you as a human mm-hmm. if you're playing as a pacifist. Like he's so used to humans attacking monsters. And because you don't, he doesn't even see you. He just sees you as like another kid like him.
1: Yes, you could look at the combat as being fairly rudimentary, um, certainly is the, 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 uh, the aggressive side of it. But I, I really love the way that the story is as deep as it is. And that actually, you know, it's not just a melee of, well, how can I get through this, you know, this kind of fight of words? It's, it's underlaced with a lot more of, you know, of the society that, you know, as you play through, it's leaked more and more to you know, your understanding of what the world is and why the characters are the way they are, and how preconceptions of who you are and your preconceptions of who they are mm. really do play into how you end up um, fighting some of these characters. It's not the first game to obviously to you know, make you feel about the you know, decisions that you're making or even the combat that you're making in situations, but it, the fact that its pretty much solely relies on that to progress the game both through story through um, gameplay. Um, And even visually, you know, it sells its worlds so fundamentally brilliantly.
0: If we're saying that the gameplay and story in this game work very well and go hand in hand, and that was the aim of uh, when Toby Fox was creating the game, he wanted to unify storytelling and gameplay in a way that I think it's fair to say a, a lot of games don't succeed in doing that. Maybe because it's not an aim, maybe because it just doesn't work out that way. But in this case... You are a human going into a world that has been almost destroyed and now abandoned and locked away by humans. Mm -hmm. All of these monsters have every right to fear humans. You are having to undo all of the damage that has been done to, if we want to call it that, monster-human relations in previous generations in the setup for the game. So it's understandable that to continue in the vein that things have preceded is easier than to undo and and mm-hmm. re-establish a new baseline for what to expect, what monsters can expect from humans in this game. And that's certainly going to come in. We're going to talk about scenario and, and story. Uh, just to tie off the, uh, the talk about gameplay and the, and the combat, Alex Maskell uh, on the forum said, Undertale's greatest strength is the way that cohesion is used in the exploration of character. In standard combat encounters, the standard battle elements, dodging, and non-violent interaction reflect each enemy's personality in funny, offbeat, fantastical ways. Boss battles, however, completely transform into extraordinary experimental puzzles. Each one provides space through its mechanics to tell a full story about that boss with its own character arcs and twists. Uh, I think that kind of neatly sums up what we've been saying about the pacifist way of playing the game and, and why it's importantly distinguished from the, the genocide uh, method, if you like. So the, the setup uh, for this, Mount Ebot, as you mentioned Maya, is where the monsters have retreated to and been locked away by humans. There was a, a battle and the humans used uh, mages essentially to defeat the monsters and exile them into, into this mountain. And that's been the result of, of a long period of war that happened way, way before. Um, and since that time, the character at the start of the game is the eighth human to fall into the mountain. And necessarily, but because the humans locked them in there, the monsters have no way out of the mountain. So any human that fell in uh, has tried and failed, uh, as far as we know, at the start of the game to to succeed in leaving again. And so that means you go in as the eighth person, but seven previous humans have died. Uh, And and Toriel in the beginning says she is going to stop you from entering the rest of the mountain, the underground, the mountain realm, by virtue of what happened to the previous seven humans who have entered there. And we find out through the course of the game what has happened to one of those humans in particular and the others there's information there to be sort of picked out about under scenario and story i just wrote um because there is so much (laughs) that's what i've just said is just the setting the scenario that you get in the opening little cutscene and the tutorial area if you like but beyond that because a lot of the stories are individual character stories Mm -hmm. and they're little arcs that you have with different characters, it's very difficult to pin down any particular story that is the central one aside from your journey through all of these realms and the relationships, which to me is kind of the point is the the stories are what we make of them. The story is making friends or not with each of these monsters in turn uh, and learning about them. And it doesn't necessarily come together as a, Cohesive narrative until you have all of the pieces in place, and as Tony, you said, possibly multiple playthroughs to compare and contrast. Technically, the character you play as is Frisk, although you can name the character yourself, unless you're playing a genocide run, in which case it's Kara. So, Kara
2: is presumably the very first human yes. that came into the underground. And was adopted by the royal family of monsters, which of which Toriel is one, her husband uh, Asgore, yeah. and then their son, Azriel. Yes. Mm-hmm. So they they adopted this and I think this is even like the name Kara comes from the actual signifier in like built into the code of the game. It was just given a generic, the first five letters of the word character. Sure. Yeah. And that's, and that's where it stayed. And so if this, this past time earlier this, this week, this, the last time that I played through, I named my player character Kara, and it will, the screen pops up with a a little prompt that says the true name. So (laughs) that's, that's how you, that's how the game tells you, like, that's actually the name of the first um, human that fell in, you can, you can play as that because you're still, you're still frisk. If you're playing as a pacifist, then you are still essentially frisk. And, and anybody else that mentions the first human will refer to, to them by their true name, which is Kara. It's important because it sets up the motivations behind a lot of the major characters, namely Asgore and Flowey and eventually Asriel. You can read about the way that monsters kind of work throughout. The, like if you go into the library in Snowden, you can read about how monsters are mostly magic, that their souls are not as strong as human souls. Um, pretty importantly, Flowey, one of the first things that Flowey says to you is he explains how your soul works. The little heart cursor that shows up in your bullet hell window. That is your soul. That's the very culmination of your being. That's the very first thing that he explains to you. And it's important because the monsters cannot escape the underground without a certain number of human souls to break the barrier down. There's a number of different variations of of how they've tried to do this in the past that you learn about if you kind of go through the past, the neutral route and go back in and do a a true pacifist thing. You learn more of that information, but essentially King Asgore of the, of the underground is trying to collect seven human souls to break down the magical barrier between the underground and the surface so that he can free his people. Frisk is the seventh human of that collection and therefore is, is, probably the most important human to come there because they just need one more. And you, you are that one more. So not only does that add a bit of urgency for you, the player thinking, well, my goodness, I'm that one that they need. What am I going to do when I finally meet Asgore? What is that going, what's good. What is that conflict going to look like? But it kind of, when you think about it, it adds a, a certain level of conflict with the rest of the monsters too, because you are the key to their freedom, but you're nice to them, and they're starting to kind of like you. Yeah. So now, what do they do?
1: Asgore, now, Asgard the king and his wife Tauriel. You know the fact that they've been split apart. Like she's left him because she thinks like he's betrayed her in the way that he's you know he's killing children to to essentially you know regain something you know some kind of spirit of her, of their son, which you know, clearly isn't going to happen.
2: There's a whole relationship there that you only really get hints of
1: down to alphys as as well who's i mean there's so much in that story you could argue in fact that she's the the entire bad game guy of this game you know by her one kind of selfish action of just wanting to see what would happen um she creates this massive kind of disaster around her yet She's a lovable character in in the game, but she's useless, and the, you know her inventions around her are things that cause in terrible stuff around her.
2: Alphys is. I'm I'm really glad that you mentioned her because I thought we would. You know, she's one. She's one of the characters I feel like kind of gets looked over sometimes, but she is so important oh, to the
1: yeah. actual
2: Pivotal, events right. <laughs> of of the game. Yeah, she is, and not not in in no small part of the fact that I think a lot of people can relate to Alphys because we either. Know somebody who has as much, who is as awkward and has as much social anxiety as she does, or we are that person that is awkward and has um, that social anxiety, she's a very familiar figure. But also, like you said, she wanted to, to see what would happen. Um, uh, when when Asriel and Kara, this is, again, big, big mm-hmm. time spoiler. When they die, their ashes and their essence are scattered out over the garden in um, their parents, um, in the royal garden, basically. And so their essence is in this golden flower now. When Alphys injects the flower with determination... Suddenly you have a character with no soul that now has the will to live. And she even says that in one of her journal entries, or it could be the previous Royal scientist, but that's a whole different <laughs> set of like theories and and whatnot. But, but they say like, what, what happens when you give something without a soul, the will to live? Well, the answer is you get Flowey and Flowey is a uh, completely is, is like a, is almost like the Joker. You never know yeah, what he's going to yeah. do from from one thing to the next, he's an agent of chaos. He's a nihilist. He believes that life has no meaning and mm-hmm. that, you know, it, everything is just there for his personal amusement, basically. Yeah. He can do whatever he wants. Yeah,
1: you know, the game is full of memes. The game is full of lots of stuff that I, yeah, you know, on first glance actually grated against me playing it. I was like, nah, yeah, well, that's a fairly obvious thing to attack, whatever it may be. But I actually, the, the more you play it, the more you dig into these characters, and actually, the further that you get into the game and realize how each one of these characters crosses, paths with each other, um, hack can have an effect, a deeper effect on the story than you first think. You know, it's it's very shallow on the surface. I think it comes across at t- at times, but it's got a really complex heart. I really
2: just want to bring up Sans for a second because he's an, another one who like out of out of the two bone brothers papyrus always kind of won me over because i i totally understand him Mm -hmm. and i love the fact that he is trying so hard to be something that is so clearly against his own nature and i find that totally charming and adorable about him and because i get his energy like i'm i'm he's dialed up to 11 pretty much all the time and i I'm right there with him. I'm always on heaven, <laughs> especially when I get excited about something or I'm very passionate about something. So I totally understand him. But Sands is almost like the heart and soul of the game as well. And, and this goes beyond the story of like, these characters are so amazingly well-written. I mean, you can't emphasize that enough. It, down to the point where like, when you play something like a Bioware game, you know, you've got really wonderful voice actors that are conveying what they're feeling or what they're thinking. You've got a dialogue tree, you've got um, the facial animation to kind of help sell that. These are just like little pixelized 2d images and some text, and yet they give you so much information about them to the point where they start to feel like real people and you feel like you have an, an actual relationship with them. Sands at one point sit you down um, to have dinner with you, which you can you can or not have that conversation with him. But you learn so much about his personality. He's he's always cracking jokes. He's telling terrible puns all the time, often, you know, with he's driving his brother crazy because he can't stand to hear another skeleton pun. I mean, he plays a trombone, for goodness sake. A bone. Even that is a, a skeleton pun. It's, it's ridiculous. But then you, you sit down and talk to him and find out that, like a lot of comedians, he is harboring this very serious side to him and carries... A lot of regret and a lot of guilt over the things that he's done in his lifetime, largely due to the fact that he probably helped Alphys and Asgore collect the other human souls. Mm. And the only reason that you are alive in this playthrough right now is because Toriel asked him not to kill you. And that's the only reason why you're alive right now. He makes it very clear that if she hadn't asked him to do that, you would be dead. He uses his comedy. He uses that smile and that wink to hide a lot of pain that he's feeling. And I also think it's pretty significant that Sands doesn't really care what you do to him so much. He judges you on your actions towards the people that he cares about, the people that he loves. If you're kind to them, then he will judge you accordingly
0: before we go with some more uh, forum correspondence to mention, Uh, the first of that is from uh, Jakob G42, who says, How can I express what Undertale means to me? On the surface, it's a cute, expectation-subverting RPG. It has a clever battle system, it has hard bosses, pretty art, and fun gameplay twists. But for me, that's not what Undertale is. Instead, it's a game bursting, with more humanity than maybe anything I've ever played. It insists that everyone from the lowliest doggo to the most intimidating knight, has something to give the world. It pushes this message so strongly with such sincerity and such heart that the cheesy notion of goodness being worth striving for actually overshadowed all my typically cynical thoughts as I crossed the finish line. In large part, I'm sure this is due to my initial playthrough on the true pacifist route. Undertale's biggest flaw may be that it requires commitment, Its world, characters, locations and even mechanics necessitate significant time spent with them to glean the meaning of what Toby Fox has crafted. It can be obtuse, confusing and maddeningly difficult. I occasionally struggle to explain to people why my real-life dog is named Toriel. And yet Undertale is a game that I want to give to everyone in the world. Its optimism, humour and soul help me through a truly dark time. I wish I had the words to explain how much this game means to me. When I have kids, I want them to play Undertale. I think right there, those are the words that explain how much the game means to you, to be honest. Uh, Very, very well put, I think. Chrysalis on the forum says, I got into Undertale relatively soon after it came out, hearing a lot of positive things about it and really liking the idea of a game where violence was not the correct solution. In the end, I felt kind of mixed about it. I found many of the characters grating and the jokes unfunny. What I did love about it was when the game slowed down and became a lot more reflective. A constant reminder to stay determined and simple messages such as despite everything it's still you really endeared me to the game and kept me going to the surprisingly creepy end. I've no real intention of going back and doing a genocide run. That seems to be in complete contradiction to how the game is set up and every time I think about playing it again I'm put off by knowing I have to deal with certain annoying aspects of it. I'm glad I've played it through. And I'm glad it's appealing to so many people. As a final point, as a non-binary individual, it's just really nice to have a completely genderless character to play as. Funnily enough, I assumed the character was uh, a girl, but there's no basis for that in the game as far as I'm aware.
2: Every player will find something different that they latched onto, even something as small as the fact that the player character is gender non-specific i think that's that's a great little detail because it just that's that's just a perfect example of how personal this game feels to a lot of people
0: yeah it's not willing to put up a a barrier over gender you know take the character as as you will that's yeah i think really really great given we've teased the different ways of playing the game we have to mention the ending so The neutral route is going to be most people's first playthrough of the game because even if you complete it as a pacifist, you can't tick all the boxes needed for a true pacifist run on the first playthrough. So there are multiple variations of the ending. They kind of get bucketed, but Sans will phone you and there's lots of different criteria that I can't even imagine how to explain all the different little things he might say to you depending upon what you did it falls down to Asgore is going to die. Either you, the player, will kill him and uh, then leave Mount Ebot, um, uh, or Flowey will kill him, or he will commit suicide. Basically, that comes down to what you guys have mentioned of of what Asgore is trying to achieve and the lengths that uh, he has gone to to do that. Genocide run, which, Tony, you've expressed some interest in trying out at some point. I cannot Mm. stress strongly (laughs) enough how much I disagree with that. Watching it felt wrong.
2: Yeah, or if you're going to do it, make sure it is the last thing that you do.
0: It's a testament to how uh, the game is built, that it is so different, that by sort of 20 minutes into the game, you are being called. A light is being shone on what you have done every character responds to you. I mean, to the point where you don't meet Alphys at all. You hear of Alphys having already evacuated the vast majority of people by the time you get there because they know what you're coming to do to them. So they start fleeing for their lives from you. It, it, That's, yeah, that's where the game goes. And it turns out that when you arrived, your similarities to Kara, who's the only human who's been in the, in the mountain that Asgore does not have the soul of because Toriel buried uh, Kara separately or uh, spread ashes separately. So Kara was awakened upon your arrival and then she and you feed off one another. Determination's a big thing uh, in in the game, uh, the notion of the will to actually do something. And uh, your act fed your determination, but also Kara's as well. And so at the end, you essentially become partners, although it's not really clear if... You were ever operating in, in with independent will, or whether her being there, Gara being there, uh, affected that, um, and the the world is destroyed either by with your agreement or not, basically, uh, and that then permanently affects any outcome of the game in future. It's written into the save file that you have that e- even if you complete a true pacifist, it will uh, it will make a point that it's it's a hollow. Uh, victory, and that you have already sold your soul in order to restart the game, and that therefore you cannot save the world. It, it just can't be done. So, yeah. And then the true pacifist, uh, probably, Maya, I, sh- I should hand over to you for uh, this, because having played through only once, I couldn't see the true pacifist ending.
2: This kind of contingent, again, like you said, you you have to play a neutral game first. Otherwise, the true pacifist ending will not trigger. So there are a couple of ways to do this. Probably the easiest thing to do is to try to make friends with all of the major characters that you possibly can, which involves backtracking so uh, just a little bit to make friends with Undyne after your fight with her and have shown her some kindness, which in itself is one of the most hilarious scenes in the entire game. It's worth it just to, just to watch um, her and Papyrus do their thing. Once you have achieved that, you can kind of go through the rest of the game as, as a neutral player. There is one of the most insane fights in the game when you fight Flowey. Um, you have to get through that, which is grueling and it is punishing. It can be done. It just requires patience and you know, just spamming your healing items. And you are also faced with a choice at the end where you can show some mercy and some kindness to Flowey. And he being without a soul is not really capable of understanding your compassion and your willingness to forgive him. He kind of looks at you funny says, "I, I can't understand why you're doing this and runs off. And then you walk through the barrier ostensibly to go back to the surface. You get a phone call from Sands and all of that plays out. Flowey comes back onto the screen and tells you outright that you could have been better friends. Uh, again, this is assuming that you made friends with everybody up mm-hmm. to and including um, Undyne. He tells you that you could have been better friends with Alphys. She is pretty much the key to unlocking the true pacifist run. She allows you into her laboratory from when she was doing the experiments on determination that would eventually create Flowey. You learn a lot of pretty nasty things about her, which Mm -hmm. she completely owns up to and says, I am going to tell people what I've done. I'm going to own up to the things that I did in the past and I'm going to apologize and, and kind of face the consequences, which is a big step for her. And you also learn about a figure that is only really mentioned in passing, which is Toriel and Asgore's child, Azriel. He's pretty instrumental to the rest of the end of the game because you are it's, it's one of those classic fights that you, you don't want to do. You just don't want to be in it, and you get a, a sense that he doesn't really want to either. But um, the fight is as much a game of survival for you as it is walking a very grief-stricken, very tormented character through the process of accepting a great loss in his life, which is his adopted sibling, Kara. And then um, you're, you're basically dealing with a, you know, one of the big things that the, that the game uh, hinges on is learning what motivates a character, learning what drives them, finding out what it is they need, and what they want in order to accept mercy from you, in order to get past something. I, I think it's, it's pretty clear that Azrael is, um, what he needs more than anything is to accept the fact that his best friend has died. And, and he has to accept his own mortality as well, because he's, he's not really alive either. It's difficult to put into words just how heartbreaking this entire scenario is. It's, it's very difficult to get through because you get a sense that this is somebody you would have liked that you could have been friends with, but he he needs to accept his own death. And the only way you're going to get to that end is to walk him through the very difficult process of, of just the anger, the the disbelief, the acceptance, the bargaining, all of those things that you go through in like a grieving process. Until he finally breaks down and, and says, I, I just want to go back. I just want to reset everything. I want to be able to ra- erase the past and go back to before this terrible decision was made. And you can't. You simply have to arrive at him accepting his own mortality and that of his, uh, his siblings. It's incredibly powerful stuff. I've played this through three times and then each time like I was just bawling completely like big old tears throughout the entire fight. Like I once it starts, I didn't stop because it is so unfortunate. You want to be able to to save this character and have him, you know, be able to come back and, and you can't. You have to let him die. It's it's a an exercise in acceptance and and taking the consequences of your choices to their very end to the point where you've got to walk this character through it. It's very very difficult. I think to to add to that, there are some really beautiful visuals in the fight. Um, some very impressive. Uh, you know, even within the limited graphics of this game, there are some very impressive, um, graphical things that happen it's very visually striking and the music is big and epic and and drives the whole fight forward it starts out with hopes and dreams and then kind of goes into a, a reprise of a similar theme song and it's so beautiful and so heartbreaking like it's it's difficult to describe and and then at the end you can you can give Azriel a hug you can try to comfort him and it is just one of the most heartfelt and heartbreaking things I think I've ever experienced in a game. The only thing that brings me this much to tears is the opera scene in Final Fantasy VI. And that's my favorite game ever. Uh it's it's an emotional roller coaster ride. It really is.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh it, I mean the the whole story with uh Toriel, Asgore, uh Azriel and and Kara and then your role in that uh through through the pacifist endings is it's something that took me a while to piece together and mull over and come to terms with but the the motivations of the characters takes an awful lot of understanding i think the the what we've talked about the the combat system of the game if you are playing non-violently that's the whole point that's when people uh, say that the gameplay matches the story in this. That's the whole point is you have to understand characters and, and you have to admit when you can't understand or, or at least you can't necessarily sympathize, but the game just uh, keeps giving you more and more reasons to empathize with. As we've said, you know, like Alphys characters who may be incredibly flawed, but nonetheless accept them for those flaws and try and help them the best that you can.
2: Um, and you still understand them. And I mean, uh, the whole thing, like, at the end of the fight with Asgore, he outright says, I don't, I don't really want this. This is not right. I don't want to hurt you. I just want to see my wife. I just want to see my son. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, anybody that has lost a family member can immediately relate to that. It's, it's such a tragic, tragic thing. And his and Asriel and, and all the Royal family, that kind of family unit their motivations are so familiar. They're so human. They're so human. And I think that's why it, it's such a, a difficult thing to go through because it is a very familiar scenario to a lot of people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and that runs through a lot of the characters in the game. There's, there's going to be something familiar about all of them. Last couple of pieces of community input before three-word reviews. Um, the green flea on the forum says, uh, in reference to endings, once I completed the game, I had to do a few other things to get the pacifist ending and willfully completed those. So I could see the whole picture. That ending is one that sticks with me. I love this game and how that storyline ended. I have read about the other ways to complete the game, most notably the genocide ending, but I haven't been able to get myself to complete it that way as it would take away from what I think the game is supposed to be. On the other hand, I enjoyed the world and events so much that I want to see more. I'm sure I will play a game one day, so I will ask the panel who uh, discussed the game for the podcast with the above in mind, do you think I should play it going for the genocide ending? Um, I can't speak for you guys, but I've already said my answer on this. Uh, if if you have to see what the genocide uh, run looks like, you can YouTube that and see it. And <laughs> I watched it all the way through because I wanted to see it to the end, but seeing 20 minutes of that, was enough to tell me that I never wanted to play the game that way. That's not to uh, say that it's not a, a perfectly legitimate way to play the game, but um, the whole tone of the game shifted in a way that I found tremendously upsetting. Uh, and, and that's for a game that even for the, the there isn't a good ending, but even for the, the pacifist ending, um, there are upsetting things about it. It's just the message is one of hope, and the message in the genocide run is not that. Uh, by any stretch. So uh, finally, uh, finishing up, we got uh, what I think is a pretty amazing email from uh, Chris Gordon. Um, it's fair to say that uh, Undertale for Chris ties to a very specific point in his life uh, that has incredible emotional Uh, meaning. Uh, You'll see why. Uh, What I I did want to say was uh, whether or not you agree with with Chris's viewpoints on the game or on what was happening in his life at at the time, uh, hopefully you will understand why Undertale has uh, pretty incredible uh, significance for him. So here's Chris's email. Uh, I just wanted to kind of set the scene for that. Chris says, I live in the United States. We had an election recently. You may have heard about it. Election night was easily the worst night of my entire life. Hate had trumped love. I spent that day in utter disbelief. As the next day came around, that disbelief had transformed to anger. That rage burned within me for days and days. And then I played Undertale. Undertale is a game for anybody who has ever lost hope. Undertale radiates warmth. Its characters are among the most memorable I have ever encountered in a work of fiction. Their quirks and personalities feel so real that every conversation fills my heart with that unique feeling you only get from seeing an old friend you haven't talked to for years. But pick up right where you left off with, instantly blurting out inside jokes and finishing each other's sentences. It's a special feeling and one that I can only say I've experienced in very few other works of fiction. I miss these characters like one would miss a friend. Repeat playthroughs of the game feel more like flipping through a photo album of cherished memories than replaying a video game. Their struggles feel uh, real, human and uncompromising. Uh, Alphys' self-worth, difficulties and fear of unrequited love, Asgore and Toriel's marriage tattered by tragedy, Papyrus' true genuine kindness despite his own acceptance issues, these characters all have an underlying note of bittersweet poignancy that humanises them and makes the game's ultimate payoff work as well as it does. The solutions to their problems lie in the love and friendship they have fostered within each other and with you. Undertale is brave and innovative. I love The Last of Us for moving storytelling and video games forward, but The Last of Us could have worked just as well as a well-executed movie. The same cannot be said for Undertale. Undertale is a video game and can only ever be a video game. Its story and message can be universally enjoyed and appreciated by non-gamers, but its delivery is wholly coded in a language they do not and cannot understand. Undertale is like reading a haiku written in a language only people like you and I can read. The haiku can be translated and its sentiment can be understood and appreciated, but the rhythm, cadence and intangible beauty of the form will be lost in the process. Undertale is a love letter to the memories people like us cherish, but it doesn't rely on nostalgia for its impact. It aims higher and its aspirations are greater. Undertale is a triumph that is greater than the sum of all its wonderful parts. Those people who voted differently than I did, the ones I spent those days blinded by rage short. Undertale reminded me that they are people. They are people just like me, they have fears, they have hopes, they have dreams. Within every flowy lies an Asriel. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't fight. Undertale acknowledges this. It knows that there are people out there who do truly awful things, but it challenges us to approach these issues with empathy rather than rage. I may never have chosen to fight, but I was still fighting to make the world better. It's just instead of using sticks and stones, my weapons were mercy, acceptance and love. Undertale tells us that it is harder to do the right thing in life. If we choose the roots of violence, we will become a powerful force. But if we offer love and acceptance, we will remain at the mercy of those who oppose us. Undertale does not reward you with rare items or improved stats for doing the right thing. It rewards you with experiences, friends and memories. Doing the right thing is indeed the harder path, but if we keep at it, we can make a difference. We can break through the barrier. If those fighting for love are filled with determination, love will always trump hate. Yeah, like I said, a, a pretty incredible email, I thought, and one I was happy to put towards the uh, the end of the show to kind of sum up our discussion. We also, uh, on our Twitter account, at Canaan Rince, on day of recording, put out a call for three-word reviews. And boy, did you guys come through. Um, thank you very, very much for, for that. Uh, we're going to run through the ones w- that we've got here now. Uh, I'll, I'll hit it off with Play Critically, who says, But Nobody Came.
2: Hope I'm pronouncing this right. Uh, Louis Philatro says bullet dodging is frustrating.
0: Freelance Police says one man odyssey. Mister Turch says spider dance fun.
2: Elk Fix says never playing genocide.
0: John Lloyd, it's still you. Pietric says be determined.
2: Nah. The King Raka, mercy spare repeat.
1: Galapinto muscle flexing contest.
0: Mauricio MM, who we heard from earlier, says profound despite cuteness.
2: Todino says best dating sim.
0: My pet Roxy.
2: Anime is real.
0: Nubish DM says inventive combat system.
2: No more Spiro says inconsistent morality simulator. Lord Matley, clever
1: ideas realized. Uh,
0: and another person we've heard from previously, Jakob G42 says through hardship, sincerity. Uh, wow, that's one heck of a podcast. Uh, the only thing remaining is our summaries, and I think I can be fairly uh, brief with this. I think the hype surrounding the game, the same hype that that made me aware of it and brought me to it, uh, and and made me interested in and excited to be on the on this podcast and hosting it and all this, did work against this game initially. It did make me feel like instead of getting to know the characters, I was trying to as I said before, brute force a puzzle. And that's not a nice way to treat, if we are saying that the conversations are like conversing with real people and trying to understand them better, that's not a way to treat another person. And so it's not a way to treat this game. Uh, and it definitely lessened uh, my enjoyment of the first hour or two, maybe. Um, and it, it it really wasn't until I saw the genocide run that it put in sharp relief what the game would have looked like if I had instead resorted to fighting the, the characters and and killing the characters. Uh, and I think that in and of itself the fact that I can watch another way that this game is played and feel that it is such a such an affront to the way that I chose to play the game speaks volumes for for how much I actually became emotionally attached to the characters and the story and the world of Mount Ebot and uh, and the Underground. And, and it's it's still remarkable to me that that any uh, piece of art, it's, it's, it's not a surprise, but it's remarkable that any piece of art can do that um, much less one that, as we said in in the way it looks and sounds, could be seen as uh, something simpler and it really, really isn't and that's uh, a wonderful testament I think to the game. Uh, Tony how about your, your thoughts on the game?
1: Yeah, as I said earlier, I think it's very simple on the surface and a very complex heart to the game. I think it's full of Great ideas um, it's very very clever um, I think sometimes the humor is genuinely spot on and funny and um, clever in a kind of meme way that the internet has become um, so accustomed to nowadays but equally I think on occasions it misses some of those those um, those points for me and I'm left kind of like slapping my head <laughs> and- Overall, it's it's um, yeah, it's a really heartfelt game. Um, I don't think I I always knew this. I I knew a two hour podcast couldn't do um, Undertale justice because there's 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 so many complex things we could talk about that are surrounding the characters, and I and I don't think that comes to the surface on your first playthrough. And I I think it's you know be it watching second playthroughs or playing third or fourth playthroughs, it, it's a real it's a game that really does. Um, require you to you know dig a little bit deeper. It, it's you know say it, it's it's more than just surface deep. I really liked it, and I, I understand why the community has you know forged around this game and Toby in the same way that they did with um Fish and Fez. And I think it kind of falls into that kind of the indie darling that it, it ticks so many boxes that it, it deserves its success. Um, I I don't think I'm as in love of it as I know some of our correspondents and um you know Maya is you know properly but I I certainly enjoyed my time with it and I and I feel like I, yeah, I haven't done uh, I need to play to the game to do more justice to to my experience but yeah it's uh, a phenomenal game so uh it certainly funds up
0: and feeling like when you get to the end of the game that you really need to go back and play it again to to get the most out of it that's that's always a great feeling. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's always something to cherish. So Maya, it, it kind of went without saying that you were going to to be last on the summaries. As Leon says, we always like to save the the most positive for last. And I don't think there's any doubt that despite mine and Tony's positivity towards the game, uh, it's it's something even more special for you.
2: Absolutely, I'm I'm almost the exact like. Um, target audience for for this game, I would say, like uh, you know, being that some of my favorite games growing up were Final Fantasy VI, Chrono Trigger, Earthbound, Super Mario RPG. It's pretty much all of the the touchstones that I had as a as a child. You know, I'm I'm I was very much a, a perfect specimen, if you will, to to absorb this game and to have a very positive reaction to it. I can't emphasize enough how much fun it is to play this game i mean it doesn't uh, you know we we got into a, a little bit of of some deep stuff and and some of the correspondents did as well this game does bring out a lot of of very deep personal feelings it it hits people on a a very emotional way but i think it's also important to remember that there's a lot of fun to be had in this game And that if we didn't have the silly puns and the quirks and all of the comedy that's in, um, especially the first part of the game, but certainly spread throughout, we may not be as willing to take on a lot of the more serious subject matter that comes up at the end. So I just kind of wanted to bring that up as well, that I think the game does a really good job of balancing um, and, and bringing us into the serious by way of the comedy. And that's just a, a, a lot of great comedies will do that. They will get you laughing so that you are then willing to accept um, a bigger message or a um, little bit more uh, serious subject matter. It really did hit a lot of the right notes for me. Um, I thought it had solid gameplay that was fun and engaging for me. and And that made me want to progress too, which is important as well. I think it has a decent story. Um, I think it has incredibly well-written characters. Um, that, to me, is one of the great accomplishments: is how well-written the characters are, and and how real that they feel. As other people have said, and I think it has important things to say about games, about gaming, about gaming culture, and the world at large. I think it succeeds at all of those things and more. And I'm going to sound a lot like um, <laughs> I'm going to sound a lot like Chris Gordon here when I say that. I think it surpasses all of the hype. I think it, it, it goes far beyond the puns, the pop culture references, the memes. It achieves something that is so rare and that is one of those intangible things that can't be measured by a Metacritic score or its ranking on game facts or anything like that. And that is that it establishes an emotional connection to the player. This is one of the most important games I've ever played. It speaks to who I am. It reminds me who I want to be as a person, as a human being <laughs> living on this planet. And, uh, and it appeals to my better nature. All of those things that, uh, that uh, again, Chris Gordon said about um, wanting to respond to conflict, not with violence, but with understanding and acceptance and love, all of those things are, are surely brought up in this game, and they feel more relevant and more crucial than ever. Now, almost two years after it was released, I think it's wonderful that I'm not alone in feeling that way and that it has inspired other people um, in a similar way that it has to me. I think it's really remarkable how this game has moved people to want to do better and to be better than they are. Um, and I think that is its true merit, and that that will be its legacy. It's one of the reasons why it's it's now one of my favorites, and I feel pretty confident in saying that it always will be.
0: Excellently put. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for a lovely summary. I think yourself and and as you say, uh, Chris Gordon, it's it's important to have uh, that kind of perspective on games that clearly mean uh, so very very much to. So many people, uh, you know, the amount of correspondence we had on this was uh, almost as overwhelming as the game itself. So, alongside uh, saying a very big thank you to Tony for joining me, it's important to say a big thank you to uh, all of our correspondents and everyone who's listening as well. Uh, it's uh, it's always great to know that uh, our our podcast is falling on excited and great ears. I guess not that the rest of you isn't great as well. Um, Maya, thank you very, very much for joining us. Um, it's, uh, as always with guests, we like to give them a chance just to let people listening know where they can find more about you or get in touch with you or anything you'd like to uh, to to offer people as a, a way to find you, I guess.
2: I am in a weird position because I kind of live a, a bit in the public sphere as well because of what I do for work. Mm. Um I am the stunt lady on the Canon Rinse forum, and there's a reason for that. It's because I'm I'm a stunt woman in real life. That's not a joke. Um, and I believe there's a link to my Twitter uh, through my profile on Canon Rinse. So people that are already members of the forum can find me that way. I'm at Maya Santandrea on Twitter, um, and I'll be in in some upcoming uh, some upcoming shows and and films out there. Um, I have been working quite a bit with the team behind the new MacGyver TV series, uh, which I believe is on ABC. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you tune into that program, you may see me flying through the air or driving or or doing something (laughs) um, (laughs) through that show. Um, I also was in a a small bit in the uh, Jamie Foxx movie called Sleepless, which might still be in theaters, but it might be out at this point. I'm not entirely sure. And I'm also going to be in the upcoming Baywatch movie. So if you have an interest in seeing The Rock run around in, in red uh, swim trunks.
0: <laughs> don't, don't we all?
2: I'll be a little dot in the background somewhere in the <laughs> kayak. It'll be great. Um, but <laughs> it, it could be, yeah, just um, I, I have a, I have an, an unusual life because i live in that world but um those are some places that you can actually see me in other pop culture media which is great but i'm always open to talking to people on the on the forum or on the twitter if they if they want to geek out if they want to ask questions um i'm i'm definitely uh open to that just uh reach out feel free
0: excellent thank you very much and uh the very best of luck with launch of films and tv shows
2: Thank you. And uh, again, this has, uh, I'm, I'm so glad I got to be on, on this show to talk about this game. So thank you very much for having me and for letting me, for letting me go off on a bit of a tangent. Count. for a minute. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Not, not, not at all. It would have been, uh, I think probably myself and, and Tony both feel this way. It would have been a, a disservice to the game to mm-hmm. not have someone on who uh, knew a bit more and had gone that little bit deeper than perhaps, uh, either of us were able to with the time we had so uh, lovely to have you on and uh, look forward to to having you on again in the future at some point hopefully Uh, that's all for this issue this has been issue 256 next time in issue 257 leon will be taking us from under the mountain to soaring over it amongst the clouds as link raises a skyward sword
3: I'm not going to do